The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I would like you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, the 22nd chapter of Matthew. And it seems that every time that we open Scripture, we fall on a place that is uh, pertinent, that, that is practical for today's Christians. Uh, the Bible may be an ancient book, but it is timeless, and we can't shove it aside and say that it has nothing for the modern person. Aside from all the social concerns that are addressed in the Bible, we do have this matter of salvation that we deal with. And there is no person who is ever saved apart from the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ that is explained to us in Scripture. And so even if, if the modern world says, well, there are no principles in the Bible that we really need to pay very much attention to, we would have this, wouldn't we? We need to know about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And that's because every person is lost and every person needs him as Savior. I say every person is lost except you who have believed, of course. But there are many practical concerns that are addressed in the Scripture, and so far from being outdated, we do find that the Bible addresses many of the concerns that we have. And here, this particular text this morning is one of those places uh, that shows the Bible's reliability for everyday concerns. Uh, this is a passage about God and government. What part does the government play in the life of a Christian, and how do we see God in relation to our government? And that is a concern that has been with Christians since the very beginning. And here we find Jesus Christ, who is the founder of the Christian religion, the Christian church, and he's answering a very vital question that's posed to him about God and government. Now, today we're going to look at this question that Jesus was asked, and it wasn't an honest question, but it was one that Jesus answered in uh, about God and government. Now, if you look at the scriptures in Matthew chapter 22, uh, stand with me again, please, as we read God's word. And we'll begin reading at Matthew 22, verse number 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is the image in the superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we find here. And yes, indeed, it is practical for Christians today. Help us, Lord, as we look into these scriptures and give us the sense, the meaning of them, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
There are many people that know very little about the Bible who are familiar with verse number 21 in this text. Jesus said, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. I had a conversation with someone the other day who was complaining about the archaic language of the King James Version. Um, And we could talk about that. Uh, There's much to discuss on that subject. But let me say that aside from the many other virtues that we find in the King James Version, we do know that there is great cultural significance to it. There are many parts of Scripture from the King James Version that have found their way into our everyday way of speaking. And if, if it weren't for anything else, we, we would just say the Bible has great literary value. The King James Version is a, is a literary masterpiece. And so we would do well to hang on to the language of it, I think. But as I said, that's a subject for another time. Our concern today in this passage is that it involves many of the attempts of Jesus' enemies to discredit him and to get rid of him. Now, in the previous section that we've studied, Jesus spoke to the Jewish leaders in parables. And although many times the parables are difficult to understand, the Bible says that that these men knew the intent of what Jesus was speaking. He was very clear to them in pointing out the hypocrisy that was in their religion, just a spiritual hypocrisy. And it was clear by this time that what Jesus had done, that he had severed all of his ties with that leadership and with the Jews' religion, and so there was no hope at this point for him to be ever reconciled to them. And so as far as the Jews were concerned, Jesus was a radical. He was someone who needed to be stopped as soon as possible, because every day that he was alive, they were losing ground to his popularity. Now in this passage, we find the first of three questions that came to Jesus in rapid succession. The first is a question about taxation that we're studying today. The second one begins in verse number 23, and that is a question about the resurrection. And then in verse number 36, they ask another question, and that is about the greatest commandment in the law. And none of these questions that these leaders ask were honest questions. They, they weren't attempts to get the right kind of information that they needed, but they were attempts to get him to stumble. But as in all of their attempts, they failed. And Jesus was always able to handle all of their questions and answer them correctly and with ease. And his answers only frustrated them further because what they could not do, they could never get on top of the wisdom of Jesus. Now let's take the first of these questions today, which is about God and government. And that just happened to be as much a hot topic in those days as it is now. I mean, if you want to raise the ire of people, start talking to them about taxes. And if you want to escalate that conversation a little bit, throw a little bit of God and country in there as well, and you're going to run into problems. And I, and I might run into some today when I give you my opinions about what this scripture says. But notice verse, verse number 15, which begins, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, this verse shows us the design of the question that the Pharisees asked. What is their intent as they came to Jesus and asked this particular question? And the answer to that is their desire was to entangle him. And that means their purpose was to trap him, to ensnare him. They wanted to mix him up. 
And this wasn't a question that was thought of on the spur of the moment, but they had huddled together, they deliberated about it, they discussed it, and they reasoned very carefully how best they could pose a question to Jesus that if he answered it, no matter how they answered it, he could not give a good answer. Now, it's interesting how the verse begins and bears a striking resemblance to the words that we find of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2. There the psalmist said, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that prophecy of the psalmist is a prophecy concerning the very things that are happening here in this last week of Jesus' life that the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities conspired together to find some way, some plausible accusation that they could make against Jesus and then put him to death. As we'll see in just a moment, there was a very strange mixing of political and religious parties that otherwise would have nothing to do with each other. But when it came to Jesus... They laid their differences aside and they worked for the common goal of murdering him. Now the Pharisees gathered and took counsel against him. And that's always the lot for wicked hearts. I mean, you just notice how sensitive and how hostile that people become whenever Christianity is put into a public context. You notice the protest about keeping Christian influence away from people. But at the same time, if there's some influence that's exerted by Muslims or by atheists, we have to be very careful about that because those people have rights. One atheist, isn't it amazing? One atheist offended is enough to get public prayer taken out of our schools. Offending an atheist is enough to stop the name of Jesus by being spoken at a high school graduation or to stop prayers that are made before football games. And, and even this, in our military, chaplains have to be very careful about preaching any kind of conviction that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And that's the way that it always is. And folks, I'm telling you that if Jesus came in our time, we wouldn't do very much different than the Jews did. We would try him and we would crucify him just as quickly. So the design of this question is to entangle him. They were trying to bring him down because he was a threat to that status quo religion. And it almost seems too incredible to believe that one who had helped so many people, who had given hope to the hopeless, I mean, how could these people be so hell-bent on destroying him? And then we notice those that are party to this entangling question. And it is a a mixing of otherwise very disparate groups. These are people that normally don't have anything to do with each other. Here it says that the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus with a group of Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were quite clever in this choice. In fact, this is a cleverness that we haven't yet seen before in these Pharisees. I mean, they, they get together, they reason about this, they take counsel together, and they must have taken some time in these deliberations to come up with this. And the leaders did not go themselves, but rather they sent some of their disciples. And by the way, as we look at this, that when we see that the Pharisees did no good in this attempt, they just regroup and they start over and they get together with another group, with the Sadducees. And and the next question comes to him and they try to take him down by asking him other questions. And we might wonder, why is it that the Pharisees would send their disciples? 
Well, the reason is that this has to look like an honest question. Jesus was already quite familiar with the tactics of the religious leaders. He was familiar with them. He knew that they were never going to come and ask an honest question. They were hypocrites, and he didn't have to be divine to read those tea leaves. So the Pharisees sent some of their neophytes, some learners, some people that were not so well grounded. Now, it says that they were disciples, and that's actually what a disciple is. It's what the word means. It means a learner, someone who hasn't quite got everything put together yet, still getting to learn their way around. And so the Pharisees hoped that, that Jesus would be fooled by this, that here are some people that, that they don't know very much, they've been influenced by others, and now they come to him asking him an honest question, and maybe what Jesus will do is to take them under his wing and try to persuade these fragile fledglings to change sides and begin to follow him. Well, the neophytes, the disciples, were accompanied by a group of Herodians. And they were necessary depending upon the way that Jesus answered this perplexing question about taxation. Now, the Herodians were a very odd group to be coupled with the Pharisees. Here we're talking about secular Jews. These aren't, these aren't religious people. They're a political party, not a religious one. And they cared very little at all for what the Pharisees were doing. They didn't like all the nitpicking little laws that the Pharisees uh, had put on the people. And so putting these, these Herodians with the Pharisees is like mixing Tea Party Republicans with liberal Democrats. I mean, th this is a thing that's just not going to work. It's oil and water and it doesn't mix, except when the cause is common. Then they mix and their cause is to get rid of Jesus. They thought that he needed to be stopped at all costs. So what's the difference between these two? Well, the Pharisees, we've talked about many times before, and a little bit later on in our studies, we're going to get into a little bit more of what the Pharisees stood for. But one of the things they stood for is they did not like the Roman government. They were anti-Roman. And that's because they didn't think that anybody had the right to rule over them but God they are God's people, and so God is the only one who has the right to rule over us. But the Herodians, on the other hand, they are supporters of Rome. Or at least they're supporters in this degree. They were supporters of the Herods, the Herodian family, that the Romans had put in power at certain times over the Jewish people. So they're behind the house of Herod, and they want to see that Herod's family continues to rule the Jewish people. Now, I'm sure that you remember Herod. Uh, the patriarch of that family was Herod the Great. And he was the one who was in power in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. And he was the one who had this wicked plot to destroy Jesus that he asked the wise men to reveal the location of where Jesus was. And when he was foiled in that attempt, it was this Herod that had all of the male babies in a 20-mile radius surrounding Jerusalem killed. That's the kind of people that we're talking about. There was one of Herod's sons who was Herod Antipas. He's the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And still another, a grandson of Herod the Great was Herod Agrippa. And he's the one that killed the apostle James with the sword and then tried to do the same to Peter. So what we're talking about here is a family that has a long history of opposition to Jesus and his disciples. 
And these Herods were not Jews. They were Idumeans, or essentially they were Edomites who were traditional enemies of the Jews. And so these Herodians that came to see Jesus were their supporters... And you really couldn't get any two groups that were any further apart on the political and the religious spectrum than these two groups. But that's the way it is with God, that the rulers and the leaders, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, interestingly, you all know that Pilate was the governor at the time that Jesus was crucified. And these very same Herodians were trying to get Pilate out of power. What they hoped that Rome would do was to substitute one of the Herods and put him in Pilate's place. And so that's what they're working towards. So this is a very odd mixture, a a coalition of very strange bedfellows, and they've teamed up to take Jesus down. And the Pharisees were very clever in the design. They They may have even sent these disciples of theirs so that they would not have to get too close to these slimy Herodians. And then when their, their little escapade here was over, they could go back to being enemies and hating one another again. Now, that's good information because it helps us to understand the next part of this, and that is the dilemma for Jesus. You see, the Herodians were called upon because of the dilemma of this question. Now, before we get to the question, I want you to see how these, how this, these two groups came to Jesus. They came with flattery. They came as if they were honest, and they came as if they had respect for him, uh, which, of course, the religious leaders could never have done. So they came to him with flattery. And did you know that flattery is a very great sin? David lamented the lack of integrity among God's people, and among the faithful, and he said in the Psalms, they speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. And so that's the way that these men came. They came with flattering lips and with a double heart. And so they came to him and they said in verse 16, Master, we know that thou art true and thou teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man nor regardest the person of men. So they come with very flattering words. And oddly enough, everything that they said about Jesus was true. I mean, they could never deny that he spoke the word of God in truth. They they said that Jesus never cared for any man. And that doesn't mean that he didn't care for people, but rather that Jesus, when he spoke, he never cared about people's opinions. And, And may I say this to you, and it might surprise you, that Jesus does not care about your opinion doesn't care about what you think. That's not really a great concern to him because truth is truth and God's way is truth and Jesus is always going to stand for truth. And so whenever you get sideways of God, you're also going to be sideways of Jesus Christ. He is not intolerant of anything that's done against the will of his heavenly Father. And that's why he has no trouble at all trouncing on false prophets who try to turn people to the ways of unrighteousness. And then they said to him, you don't regard the person of men. Proverbs says, it's not good to have respect of men in judgment. And so Jesus did not look at his audience to see who was there before he spoke. 
He cared very little if he offended people. He wasn't going to compromise God's word, no matter who was listening. And so if you were afraid of getting your toes stepped on when you came to hear Jesus, the best thing to do is bring your steel-toed shoes because he was not going to compromise God's word for anybody. Now, when you talk about things like this, you can see that Jesus would have a very tough time in the modern pulpit. Jesus was not a men-pleaser. He wasn't a smiling Joel Osteen charlatan who is afraid to bring up sin, and neither was he a Rick Warren who loves to load the church up with 40-day fake Christians. So, so they were absolutely right in everything they said about him. And what they should have done, they should have truly respected him for the uncompromising nature of the way that he spoke, and they should have believed his words. I mean, this dichotomy that exists between his virtue of veracity and their hopeless hypocrisy should have been enough to show them he's the one they're supposed to follow. He always tells the truth. And, and did you know that, the, that what Jesus said and what they said about him is also expected of us? Jesus said, if you want to do the will of the Heavenly Father and if you want to do what's right, then you follow the way that the Master goes. You do what the Master does. And that means that when a preacher stands before his congregation, he should never survey the crowd and change the message depending upon who hears it. You see, one of the characteristics of preaching in the last days is that there will be a distortion of truth that preachers will change the message in order to accommodate people who have itching ears. And lots of people have itching ears. They don't like to be told certain things. And so preachers know that. And what they do is they, they stroke people and they tell them about their goodness and about their, about their self-esteem and their self-worth and all that kind of stuff. And so they're never going to preach to tell sinners that they're lost and they're condemned to hell. They'll never talk about sin and be a John the Baptist who says that you must repent or perish. But they'll smile. And they'll tell jokes like Osteen, and they'll gather into their congregations 50,000 people to hear them and speak to millions more on TV. And I'll tell you this, when that many people like you, it's not because of Jesus Christ. The leaders, the rulers take counsel, people take counsel against those who promote Jesus Christ. And when the truth is preached... They always take that counsel, and one of these days, these people are going to end up in hell, a hell that they never like to talk about, and they're going to wish that they had a preacher who would actually tell them the truth of the way things are. So Jesus was all of the things that he, they said. He was a great teacher. He always told the truth. He never compromised. He never held back because somebody might not like it. And so they came to him and they buttered him up. They hoped to get him into a position where he would kowtow to all of this flattery and that he would prove to be everything they said that he was. So after their deliberations and after their preparations, after all of the flattery, then the stage is set for their question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Well, that doesn't seem like a very hard question for us to answer, is it? I mean, we can answer that question with another old English archaic saying, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Or we may put a modern twist to that and just say, just do it. Just pay the things and get it over with. 
Now, I don't want to bore you with, with, with all of the details about Roman taxes. I mean, you might be bored enough already and have trouble staying awake. But when you get to the subject of taxes, it's not pleasant. And I do have to tell you that this is not a question for someone like Jesus to answer in this kind of society with the type of following that he had. It's a very dangerous question for him to deal with. Now, what the Romans had done, they had imposed a variety of taxes. Uh, the Jews paid many different taxes. And the one that's in question here happens to be the most controversial of all of them. This is what is called a poll tax. That is, it's not a tax on property, but it's actually a tax on people. Now, you see the word tribute in verse number 17? That is the same word in Latin as census. It's the same tax that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Remember the scripture says that there was a taxation, that there was a census? Well, this is the tax that it's talking about. Now, some taxes are property taxes, and the Jews regularly paid those. They also paid a temple tax, and we talked about that when we went over Matthew chapter 17. But here we're speaking of an individual tax. It's a tax that's on people, and the Pharisees really hated this particular tax because it meant that as a people, they belonged to Rome. And if they paid this tax, they belonged to the Roman Empire, and they were not Romans. Nobody has the right to rule over them. They're God's people. And so they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay this tax? And quite honestly, they thought that Jesus would say, no, don't pay the tax. And that's why the Herodians are there. They're there in case Jesus says, no, don't pay it. And Jesus, with this great following that he had, he would be noted as a person of interest. And if he is against the Roman government and against the taxes, then he'll have to face the Romans by telling people not to pay it. Now, there were others that had opposed Roman taxes, and that's what had happened to them. They were killed. If you will, just turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 5 and verse number 36. And this was after the apostles had been preaching around Jerusalem and at the temple that there was a rabbi there, Gamaliel, who was a very respected rabbi, and he was giving some advice concerning these preachers of the gospel and what to do with them. And in the course of that advice, he mentioned something about tax revolt. Now this is what Gamaliel said, speaking in Acts 5, beginning in verse 36. He says, For before these days rose up Thutis boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed, were dispersed. So there you have two men, Thutis and Judas of Galilee. They're tax evaders. Rome would not tolerate tax evasion or insurrection. And so if Jesus were to say, don't pay this tax, then the Herodians were there to report it to the Roman authorities. Now you have to understand that this is a practical thing for, a very pragmatic thing for the Pharisees to do because they would never report that Jesus said don't pay taxes. They didn't agree with paying the taxes, so they can't go. That would make much sense. If they reported Jesus for saying it, then they would be the object of the people's wrath. So it's a very, very clever plot to have the Herodians there. 
And then on the other hand, they were prepared just in case he did say, yes, pay the taxes. If he says that, they have their disciples there to report what he said to the people. So you see the dilemma that develops. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, he has to face the Romans. And if he says, pay the tax, then he has to face the people. Well, Jesus was too smart for them. Notice his reply, verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image in superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now the third part of this is the directive to follow. What did Jesus tell them to do? Now Jesus knew that these men were hypocrites, just like their masters. Uh, John 2.25 says that nobody has to tell us what's in the heart of man. Jesus already know that, knows that. He knows every heart. He knows the intent of every heart. And he's not going to get caught in this trap. So he doesn't, have, he doesn't need the time to deliberate like they did. I mean, here he receives this question cold from them, and needing no time to think about it, he asked them to bring him a coin. And the coin that they brought to him was a denarius. That was a silver coin that was used to pay the Roman taxes. And it was uh, uh, the amount of about the wages of a Roman centurion for a day, so it was a fair amount. On one side of that coin was a picture of Caesar. Now, I have a picture for you here of me holding one of those coins in my hand. And on the front of it, it has the picture of Caesar. And in this case, it's a picture of Caesar, uh, Tiberius Caesar. And there was a superscription that was on the coin. Our coins have a superscription on them that says, In God We Trust, even though there are very few Americans that actually trust in God, but we still have the superscription. Well, Caesar has his coin, and on his coin there is a superscription, and this superscription said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back of the coin, there was a picture of Caesar in the robes of a high priest, and on that backside it said Pontiff Maxim. That means high priest. And in case you're interested, that is the same name that the Roman Catholics give the Pope. The Pontiff Maxim. So here's the problem. Caesar claimed to be divine, and he claimed to be a high priest. And folks, that was infuriating to the Jews. And what the Romans would do is they would let the people have their gods to worship, but they wanted them to know that there is one God who is above all their gods, and that is Caesar. Caesar is their God. And that was infuriating to the Jews for two very big reasons. Now, all of us know that the Pharisees are upholders of the law. They're always reading God's law. They're always going back to the Ten Commandments. And what two things stand out in the law that told them that they can't do this? Well, the very first commandments. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And commandment number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness thereof. And so what did this Roman coin represent? Well, it represented a God who is above the God of Israel, and also it has an image of Caesar breaking the second commandment, who is that God? And that kind of clears things up, doesn't it? I mean, how, how can they uphold the law of God and the law of Caesar? 
Here you have laws that are in conflict. So who's right here? Is it lawful to pay the tax? Now, do you see how hard the question is to answer? So how is Jesus going to get out of it? Only the wisest way possible. He has to skillfully negotiate the pitfalls that are in the question. And so Jesus said, whose picture is on that coin? And whose inscription or superscription is on the coin? And of course, the obvious answer is Caesar. And then he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And you can't quite catch the meaning of the change of wording here in our English language. But look back at the question in verse 17. It says, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? The, the, the question is give as in giving a gift. It's not something that you owe because they didn't think that they did. It was something they gave. And when Jesus responded to the question, it was a response with a change. He changes the word to render. And that's a word that means to give back. In other words, give back to Caesar the things that belong to him. What he's given you that belongs to him, give it back to him. Now, folks, there wasn't any of them that couldn't agree with that statement. I mean, they would gladly give back everything that Caesar gave them just to get rid of him. They didn't even like to carry these coins around because that was like carrying an idol for them. And so it's likely that the person who handed Jesus a coin was not one of the Pharisees. That's one of the Herodians who supported the Roman government. Now, what did Jesus mean when he says, give back what is Caesar's? Well, Jesus, uh, rather Caesar had used money to bring them government. Caesar had used money to give them public works. Caesar used money to modernize Israel and to help them in their daily lives. I mean, still today, if you go to Israel, you can see the remains of Roman roads and public improvements that were made by the Romans. In Caesarea, there's a huge aqueduct that was built there by the Romans. I have a picture of that, still standing today. And that was used to bring fresh water into the city of Caesarea. And you still see the remains of those Roman roads uh, that were built to bring commerce into the area. And, and there are many public buildings that the Romans built. And in fact, they had expanded the temple complex to be a major, major public works operation right there in the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus said, give back to the Romans. Give them their taxes because they've given to you. Give back to Caesar the things that belong to him. Now, for anybody that resists paying taxes, the command from Jesus is to pay them. Even in a society where there's taxation without representation, Jesus said, pay your taxes. And that's according to a larger principle that human government has been ordained by God and human government helps us. Paul taught this in Romans chapter 13. Now, I'd like you to turn there for just a minute. Romans 13 teaches us that even bad government has been ordained by God. Now, you know the government in, in power at the time that Paul wrote this was the Roman government, and the Roman government was persecutors of Christians, and yet Paul upholds that very same government. Now, in Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, power there stands for government. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the government, resisteth the ordinance of God. 
And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. Now, there it tells us that even a bad president or a bad king, or whoever it might be, God puts that person in power. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, or this is the right thing to do, this is the godly thing to do. For, for this cause, pay ye what? Tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So Paul says here, in relation to our subject, pay your taxes. And Jesus said, pay your taxes. And in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, Peter said, pay your taxes. You see, Christians have the greatest duty to honor government because we understand that it is God who gave us our government. And so we receive all kinds of public benefits. We receive the benefit of our courts, the punishment of lawbreakers. We receive the benefits of public roads. And maybe you might not consider this a benefit. I'm not sure. The benefit of public schools, uh, they can have that back, I think. But, but anyway, the government does all this, and so the Bible is telling us, don't cheat on your taxes, pay your taxes, because God says to. Now, what about the second part of his directive? He said, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, on one side of that coin... There's a picture of Caesar, and Caesar claims to be divine, and Caesar claims to be the high priest. And in the second part of the directive, Jesus is telling them, you can't go that far. That worship belongs to God, and Caesar is not God, and he's not supposed to be worshipped. So you render to God the things that are God's, and what is that? That's worship. Only God deserves worship. And so you have to make this separation. When the government conflicts with God, we always have to obey God. As the apostle said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so you see what Jesus did? He diffused the question. In the first part, he satisfied the objection of the Herodians by saying, pay Caesar what belongs to him. And in the second part, he satisfied the objection of the Jews by saying, you worship God. That's your primary objective, worship God. So nobody has any anything to report bad. Jesus answers the question according to the scriptures. He's not against the government and certainly he's not against God. Now, let's back up for just a minute and let's consider the options when we're choosing God and government. James Montgomery Boyce has some insightful comments on this that I think they're helpful. So let's talk for a minute about options about government. What are our options? Well, option number one is God alone as authority. Now, that is an option that we call a theocratic government. And that's where you have no allegiance to anyone but God. And this is what you get when a group of people, a group of hermits get together and they go off to live in monasticism. 
And in the time of Jesus, there was a group that did this. They were called the Essenes. They essentially separated themselves from everyone else, and they went off to live in the desert around the Dead Sea. And they're the ones that uh, hid away the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1946. This is the type of people that Christians that are like this, that they won't have anything to do with secular government at all, so they won't vote in elections, and they won't have friends that are not Christians, and they're the kind of people that won't buy products from Procter & Gamble because they think that they use satanic symbols. And I just threw that one in. If you don't know what it is, look it up. And, and you know, that, that's just kind of the craziness of this kind of a position, that only God can be in our authority so we pay no attention to human government. Now, the second option is Caesar alone as authority. And that's the option that we call secularism, that we have no God but the state. And that's the most dangerous position of all because that leaves our government with no accountability, that there is no moral authority. That's what you get with a, governor, a government of dictators and fascists and communists. And you watch how, our, how that our government deteriorates into socialism with wealth distribution and government mandates like health care that takes away the choices of capitalism. And you watch how we continually slide into more secularism. And you'll notice how that we keep pushing God further and further out. And as we do, we tend towards that socialism that we don't need God, we need the state. Now, socialism is the fast track to communism and dictatorship. Now, you know why the framers of our Constitution gave us a balance of powers? Very simple principle. People in power cannot be trusted. And so when the, when the president takes on the, the work of the legislature and the Supreme Court takes on the work of the legislature, we're concentrating the power of government in the hands of too few people. And, and that's about as political as I'm going to get today. Thirdly, what is our next option? Caesar and God with Caesar dominant. And that is the most illogical form of government that there is because if God has any authority, he must be the dominant authority. I mean, by definition, God is supreme. Now, this type of government is actually the Roman idea. Pilate thought that this was the best kind of government because when he would have set Jesus free, he was afraid because the Jewish leader said that if you let Jesus go, then you're not the friend of Caesar. And so Pilate gave up Jesus, who is the Son of God, because he thought Caesar was more powerful than Jesus. But he found out, or ironically I should say, it was found out that Pilate was not the friend of Jesus, we know that, but neither was he the friend of Rome, not the friend of Caesar. Because it wasn't very long after this that Caesar removed Pilate from power and sent him to France where he died. Now some of you might like to die in France. But at that time, the French were considered, and they weren't French then, but they were considered to be barbarians. So Caesar was not Pilate's friend. Now fourthly, the fourth option that we have for government is God and Caesar with God dominant. And that's the position of the Bible. That God has ordained government in which he is primary. And so Christians obey God first and then we obey the government because that's what God told us to do. 
And so as a Christian, you are supposed to be the best citizen that you can be. And the only time that you are allowed to go against government is when government is against God. And then I'll tell you this, that we can only resist our government by peaceful means. And so as the government says you can't have churches, and it says you cannot preach the gospel, we do it anyway, because that's what God has told us to do. Now, peaceful means, I say, so we can't do what Nelson Mandela did. We can't kill people for humanitarian causes, a misnomer if there ever was one. And I'll stop there without further discussion as well. So those are the options that we have. And the fourth one is the one that we take because that is the one that is biblical. Now finally, and I'm coming to a close here, and I'm sure you're glad for that. Fourthly is the departure of the inquisitors. Let's hurry, you've been patient. Verse number 22, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So Jesus masterfully told the truth, and, and he did just what they said in the beginning that he would do. So they were very prophetic in this. Jesus gave them God's way, and he didn't care who heard about it. And so when they heard the truth, and they knew that he had given the right answer, uh, an answer that defied their abilities of their intelligence, what should they have done? Well, they should have said, nobody's this wise. Nobody answers questions correctly all of the time. Nobody has this much wisdom and authority. So let's follow him. But they didn't do that. They left him. And what they did was to go off to dream up another scheme in order to trap him. And that's what people do. Just like Psalm chapter 2 says, this is what they always do. They're always scheming to get rid of Christ and they still say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And what people do not realize is that someday all governments are going to end. Now, the government of the United States has been actually one of the longest governments that's been in power in this form in all the history of the world. Did you know that? I mean, in this particular form, uh, it's one of the longest existing governments. And, and we're only, what, 200 and some years old, 236, 37, 38, somewhere along in there. And someday, folks, this government is going to end. It's going to pass away. All governments will. And there's only one government that's going to last, and that is the kingdom of God. It is an everlasting kingdom. And so what should you do? The very best thing possible for you to do, and that is to right now bow to this king who is everlasting. Now, if you don't bow to him now willingly, the word of God teaches that one day you're going to bow to him unwillingly. And you don't want to be caught there because the difference between being willing to bow and unwilling to bow is the difference between heaven and hell. Bow to Jesus now. It's never too late as long as you're in this life to receive the mercy of heaven's king. And what does the Bible say to do? Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And when you do that, you will sit under his rule and you'll be eternally thankful that you did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Though we're feeble in our attempts to explain it all, uh, we're just thankful that the Holy Spirit can take what's spoken and use it in the hearts of people to help them to understand truth. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to some heart today. Help us to understand that Jesus is our great king, that we must surrender all to him, we always obey God first before we do our government. 
And yet we also understand that that government has been ordained by God. And so to be uh, testimonies, to be good examples of people who follow the government is also to be an example of Jesus Christ and what he taught. Help us, Lord, in all of these things. Perplexing questions that come to us, but we know that you always have the answers. Speak to some heart today. Bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.